Amen. Take your Bibles this morning. I'm going to give you a couple minutes to get there because it's probably not a very easy place to find, but the book of Hosea. Hosea, chapter 10. Hosea, chapter 10. <clears throat> and while you're turning over there, I'm going to give you a little bit of a background into this passage. Um, in the previous chapters here in Hosea, and by the way, Hosea's actually got uh, 14 chapters in it. It's a book that most people probably don't even realize is there. You may not have even ever read through the book of Hosea. Hopefully you've read through the Bible, and if you have, then you've come to this. And I know this is kind of one of those minor prophet books that a lot of people just kind of skim through and don't really pay a whole lot of attention to because there's, there's a lot of prophecy, I guess, to Israel. But in the previous chapters leading up to chapter 10, uh, Israel, Hosea prophesied in the northern kingdom, by the way. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. There were no good kings in the northern kingdom. Um, out of all of the kings that, that reigned there, uh, and only eight out of the 20 kings in the southern kingdom were actually good kings, kings that God said something good about. And many, even, even of those eight, a few of those were kings who had a pretty good reign and then fell off at the end or did something that God had to curse them for at the end of their reign. Um, but Israel had willfully sinned and willfully rejected God and willfully fallen into idolatry. And here in this passage, God's ready to destroy the nation of Israel for their wickedness. Uh, they had been involved in this stuff for over the past years and, and through the reigns of the last 14 kings, and God was tired of it. God said, I, I'm not going to put up with this much longer. They knew what was the right thing to do. They still had the word of God. They still had those who were faithful in Israel, even though the kings were not. They had those that were faithful to serve God. They had prophets that were still trying to, to bring the people back, but God's full of mercy. He wants to send them revival, and same thing it is uh, with so many today who claim the name of Jesus Christ. They're headed for destruction because of their sin, and they don't even realize what they're getting themselves into, but God is merciful and wants to send us revival. And when we were kids, we would play doctor, and a lot of times, you know, the pills that we prescribed were Smarties. You know, we didn't get a lot of candy, but when you had a pack of Smarties, you didn't just shove the whole thing in your mouth. You had to make it last, right? So you played doctor and you gave pills that were smarties to, you know, as the medicine. And I know how it is, like, uh, I know a little bit about medicine, but I'm not a doctor by any stretch. And I can tell you that if I feel sick and I go visit a doctor, I want him to give me a prescription. I want him to give me something, whether it's, uh, what is the stuff that I was talking about the other week? Percocet. Percocet, that's right. Yeah, give me all the Percocet you can give me, right? Uh, whatever else you can give me. I want something when I go to the doctor. Even if it's Smarties, just give me something to make me feel better. JJ got a big kick out of that. Because what did, what did I actually get? Prednisone. So I had all that poison ivy, and I got, they, the doctor gave me prednisone. Well, I got up here and said the doctor gave me Percocet, and I took all these Percocet pills and everything else. Everybody's just like, how did you eat all that stuff, and you're still standing there, you know? But uh, that's why I made out of steel, you know? No, I'm just kidding. That's what Brian would say. But uh, when I go to the doctor, I want something as a prescription, right? I don't want him to say, yeah, well, I think just give it a couple weeks and it'll probably clear up on its own. No, uh, it might. It might. But you better give me something. I'm, I'm here. I don't go to the doctor very much anyway. I'm here. Give me a prescription. Give me something that I can take that will help this. And that's exactly what we have here in Hosea chapter 10. Uh, we're given a prescription for revival. Verse number 12, it says this. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek 
the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. So what I want to share with you this morning for just a few minutes is exactly what this verse gives us, and that is a prescription for revival. Prescription for revival. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for the opportunity we have to gather around your word this morning. I thank you for the freedoms that we have to be able to do that. And God, I pray that you wouldn't help us to take it for granted that we can open up your word and preach freely. And God, I pray that it wouldn't get to to be something that's just rote, something that we just do because we always do it that way, but that, that we'd have open hearts and open minds for you to give us whatever we need this morning from your word. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts in only the way that you can, and we'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is this, and that is the setting for revival. The setting for revival. Destruction is sure if we don't see revival. Now, in his book, uh, Walter Lord wrote a book called Day of Infamy, and of course he gives the reader a a glimpse into uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor. And that was many, many years ago now. But this attack on Pearl Harbor took them completely by surprise. Obviously, they were not expecting for these planes to come you know, flying over there and dropping bombs. But one of the sailors actually had the sentiment that a lot of the other sailors thought. And he said, he made this comment, somebody's going to catch it for putting live bombs on those planes. They thought it was a practice drill. They had no idea that these, that these Japanese Zeros had made their way all the way over to Hawaii and were dropping real bombs and were actually declaring war on the United States. Somebody's going to catch it for putting live bombs in those planes. A lot of the destruction that happened at Pearl Harbor could have been averted had they been ready for that to come. A lot of it, had, a lot of it could have been averted if they didn't realize or if they realized that it was not a drill. They thought it was just practice. They thought it was just planes of their own flying around. And so they didn't jump into action. They didn't do a lot of things right away because they thought, well, this is just going to pass over. It's a drill. It'll be done. A lot of people lost their lives that day. But what a picture of the situation today. Our culture is under a full-scale attack by the devil who is trying to absolutely destroy not only our world but Christianity. And a lot of Christians are asleep thinking, well, this is just a drill. It'll pass. It'll go away. It's not going to. And if we don't, destruction is sure if we don't see revival. And so first of all, we see the necessity of sowing the seed. Look what he says there in Hosea chapter 10, the first part of verse 12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. It's impossible to reap mercy if we don't sow righteousness. There's the principle of sowing and reaping. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Keep your finger in Hosea chapter 10 so you don't have to find it again. Put a bookmark in there or something like that. But revival is simply a return to obedience to God. That's what revival is. And, and, you know, we talk about revival a lot. Churches want to see revival. We're having revival meetings and all this stuff. Revival is very, very simple. Revival is just simply a return to obedience to God. Revival only comes to those who are saved. You have to be alive once in order to be revived, right? Something that's not alive at all is not being revived. It's being made alive. And so you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. There's so many people in this world that are dead in their sins. Dead, the Bible says, dead in their trespass and sins. That means that you've never been made alive by Jesus Christ. You don't have that new life in Jesus Christ because you've never asked for, for that forgiveness for your sin. You've never asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart and to be your Savior, Revival does not come to somebody who is not saved. Revival can only come to those who are already saved because you are being revived from having been alive and now losing that life and having that revival. You know, there's a lot of people that want to say that, oh, well, you know, we had this great revival and all of these people got saved. And 
No, people getting saved is a result of revival. It happens when God's people get revived and get a renewed desire to see God do something in their life. That's what revival is all about. The principle of sowing and reaping is all the way throughout the Bible, though, and we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. You know? I mean, it's, we're going to reap more than we sow, right? You don't put the exact same amount of kernels of corn in the ground as what come up on the stalk, right? You put one kernel of corn in, and a stalk comes up with a bunch of different ears that have hundreds of kernels on each ear, right? You always reap way more than you sow. And so the Bible says, sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. If we pray, it gives us a greater desire to have a greater prayer life. If we humble ourselves, it stimulates us to humble ourselves more. If we start to tithe the way that God tells us that we ought to be tithing and giving to his work, then he's going to, we, we're going to want to give more. If we sow a little, then that's all the mercy that you're going to get back. You might start to see small changes, but you're never going to see the floodgates opened, and that's exactly what God wants to do. God wants to send a revival. God wants to sow, wants you to sow in righteousness so you can reap in mercy, and he'll give you way more mercy than you sow in righteousness. That's just the principles of sowing and weeping, reaping. And a lot of people would be tempted to say, oh, things are so bad right now, we can never see a revival. Look how bad everything is in America. Look at the direction everybody's going in. Look at how, you know, just the, the whole morality is, is gone. You know, most people that are 20 or 30 years old, some of them, many of them, have probably never even been in church once. Used to be that everybody grew up in church and then they would kind of go their own way and get out of it and everything else. Now nobody goes to church anymore. The morality in America is gone. We can't see a revival in America. We can't see God do something here again. Look how bad everything is. And I agree with you that things are bad in America. We've come a long way from where we used to be when we stood on the principles of the word of God and when there was morality and when there was people who were serious about being a Christian. But I don't agree with you that we can't see a revival in America, and I'll tell you why. There's been many times throughout history when things are darker than they are today. God does his best work when we get no glory for the results. And I can tell you this, if a revival comes to America, everybody's going to know that God did it. Oh, there might be somebody who happens to be the one that was in the church that sparked this revival or whatever else, but nobody's going to give credit to that person or to that church because everybody's going to know there's no way that a revival would come without God doing it. The worse things get, the better our chances of revival are because God is going to get the glory for that when revival happens, and I believe it will happen. So we see, first of all, the setting for revival, but go back over to Hosea chapter 10. There's a stipulation. For revival. He says, sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground. Fallow ground is ground that is undeveloped but potentially useful. We grew up in the cornfields in Indiana, and we had cornfields all around us. They would plant beans, they would plant corn, they would plant a lot of different things. Sometimes they would just let it grow up and be hay. But I can tell you this, that the ground needs to rest every so often, and so uh, sometimes they would leave a field setting where they didn't do anything to it for the entire season, and that ground would get hard, and there's no way that you can go through and start planting something in that ground, and so what they would have to do is they would come through with those tractors, and they would just plow up all that fallow ground, 
that ground that sat there dormant, that ground that's just not good soil for planting in. And as they plowed it up, it came to be this nice dark brown color, and they would be able to plant in there and, and see things happen in that field the next season. And that's exactly what God's talking about. We've got to get all that known sin out of our life. One of the things that these farmers did often was they would go through their fields and they would just get the, they would get the stones out. You can't plant very well when you've got stones all over in the field. And the, the longer the farmer farms that field, the more he's able to get the stones out. The more he churns up that soil, the more stones are churned up with it, and they take those things out of there. And that's exactly what we're supposed to do in our lives. It's exactly what has to be done in our lives. That's what God's talking about, about break up your fallow ground. Oh, you're, just, you're a Christian that's been a Christian for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. You've been doing this for a long time. This is just the way that it is. I go to church every Sunday. I go to church on Sunday night. I go to church on Wednesday night. I go and do this. I'm, I go and do that. I pull my Bible out and read it in the morning. I say a few prayers. That's just the way that it is. I'm a Christian. But it doesn't mean anything to you. It doesn't do anything in your heart and life because it's just gotten to be something that's rote. It's just something that is just the way that it's always been done. And so you're so good at doing Christianity without being a Christian. Doing things on the outside that everybody can look at and see and watch and say, well, there's a good Christian right there, but you're not on the inside. What God is saying is we need to break up that fallow ground. Stir that soil. Stir it up. And then it's going to bring to the surface those rocks, those sins that you need to get out. Take it out. Throw it away. Get rid of it. And then keep plowing it. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to plow up more rocks, and you can get those out. And pretty soon, you're going to have some ground that is very good for planting. And God's going to be able to do something in your life because he's got soil that's useful. Break up your fallow ground, he says. We have to develop a hatred for that sin. Billy Sunday said it this way. He said, I hate sin. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. I'll punch it as long as I've got a fist. I'll bite it as long as I've got teeth. And when I'm old and fistless and toothless, I'll gum it till I die or till sin goes home to perdition. That's the way that you fight sin. Billy Sunday was an old preacher in the 1920s and 30s. He was a, he was a famous baseball player who got saved, left all that whole life, and went into the life of being a preacher. And God used him greatly. But he hated sin, and he preached against it all of the time. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 25, Moses chose the same thing. It says that Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And by the way, sin is only for a season. Oh, it's fun while you're doing it. It's a lot of enjoyment that you can get out of sinning many times. That's why people do it, because there's enjoyment in it. But it only lasts for a season, and that enjoyment is done. Look what happens to somebody who, you know, oh, it's so fun to go out and drink with all my buddies and have all a good time drinking and everything else. But, but those beer commercials that you're seeing on the television and everything else don't show you the guy laying in the gutter who used to be a doctor who now has nothing because alcohol ruined his life. Right? right? We'd come up to people all the time in Chicago. We, we didn't live that far from Chicago when the Pacific Garden Mission was there. And we'd go there to the Pacific Garden Mission and sing and preach and do some things for them. In the mission, they had a service every night. And I, ha I talked with a couple people there. And I, I, didn't, you know, I didn't know everybody that was there, but a huge congregation of people. And they would come up, and we had an opportunity to talk with them afterwards. And I remember one guy in particular who came up and said, I used to be a doctor. I had a beautiful wife. I had a couple of kids. I had a practice. And he said, I got into alcohol. And I started drinking because things were not going so well in my marriage. Things were not going so well in my practice. And he said, I, it, it, it overtook my life. My wife left me. My kids left me. I got, I got disbarred as a doctor. And now here you see me. He said, I go out and I beg on the streets every day and I come and sleep here every night. Because the 
devil is not going to show you the end of that sin. He only shows you the beginning. He shows you where it's fun. He shows you where you can get all this enjoyment out of it. He shows you where you can have all of this pleasure from sin. But like Moses said, it's the pleasures of sin for a season because that season comes to an end. And when that season comes to an end and the, and the, and the chickens come home to roost, there's going to be a price to pay for that sin. And it's, it's, it's never enjoyable. It's never enjoyable. We have to allow God to search our hearts. Breaking up that fallow ground is not just taking care of the surface. It's reaching down deep and plowing deep and getting down deep into that soil where God can rip those things out by the roots so that they can't grow back. On April the 11th, 1912, one of the greatest ships that was ever built sunk to the bottom of the ocean on the maiden voyage. You know I'm talking about the Titanic. And for a long time, they were not able to get down to the bottom of the sea and, and view the damage and everything else. And so they knew that they hit an iceberg. And the common theory was that there was a 300-foot gash all the way down the side of that Titanic that caused it to sink. But obviously, they were able to come up with some developments where they were able to take a deep-sea explorer down there with video cameras and everything else and go down there and survey the wreck. And you know what they found out? It was not a 300-foot gash all the way along the whole side of the Titanic. There were six small gashes in the side of it that literally took up no more than the distance of two sidewalk sections. And yet they hit those six airtight holds, and that brought that entire ship down. And, you know, there's a lot of people who think, well, I'm, you know, I don't have these huge sins in my life. I just, you know, just a few little things here and there. You know, what's, what's it going to hurt? You know, I'm not a murderer. You know, I've never robbed a bank. I, I don't have all these big sins. Why is there a difference between big sins and little sins? To God, a sin is a sin, right? But we've, we are the ones who have decided to call something a big sin or something a little sin. But those little sins, those little things that we think are not so important, the lying, the, the disobedience to God, the backbiting, the rebellion, the bitterness, you name it. Those are the things that are going to bring us down, and those are the things that we have to get out, or they're going to destroy our lives. Psalm 139. In fact, turn over to Psalm 139. I know you know these verses, or at least you might have seen them before. But Psalm 139 says this, verse 23. And this is, this is what we need to be able to pray. So few Christians are willing to pray this because it's a bold prayer because if you pray it and you mean it we don't know what's going to happen and a lot of us aren't willing to pray a prayer like this david says this search me O god psalm 139 verse 23 and know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting you know why david prayed that because he knew he was right with God. He knew he didn't have anything in his heart that God was going to find. And if there was something in there that he didn't know about, he wanted God to show it to him. But you know why Christians won't pray that today? Because they know they've got stuff in there that shouldn't be there. They know they've got things in their life that should be gotten out. They know that they have things that are the besetting sins. They know they've got things in the closet that most people, if anybody, knows about. But they know they're there. You can't pray that to God. If, Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Just don't look in that room because that's my stuff. Search everything else, but don't go in there. Right? That's not what David said. 
David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And if you find anything, tell me, I'll get it out. That's what we ought to be praying, but we're afraid to pray that so many times because we know exactly what's gonna, what God's going to find, and we don't want him to find those things because we're going to have to do something about it. But that's exactly what God is talking about when he says, break up your fallow ground. Get them out of there. Get those things out of there. We need to say like Leonard Ravenhill. He was an old preacher. He's, he's dead now, but he said, oh, God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Stamp eternity on my eyeballs. And if we look at things through the eyes of eternity, that little sin that you're holding on to means nothing in the grand scheme of eternity. When we stand before God and God says, well, you had this in your life for most of your life. Well, God, you know how important that was to me. And, and we're not going to say that. We're going to look at him. We're going to say, how foolish, how foolish I was to hold on to that. I don't, I mean, you could, any, any number of things that it could be, well, this movie that has all of this, you know, uh, uh, cussing in it, or this, you know, it has all of these inappropriate scenes in it and all of these other things. Well, I can't give up those movies. It's, it's a movie. I mean, what, what, what am I, I going to do if I can't watch a movie that's rated R? God, you know I couldn't give that up. No, but when you stand before God, you're going to say, that was, that was worthless. It counted for nothing. And yet, you lost all of that, in, that effectiveness for God because you had to have your R-rated movies, your movies that were rated PG-13 that had all this stuff in it that you knew was wrong, that you would never do yourself, but you're going to watch somebody else do it, and you're going to pay the people who are promoting all of those things by buying their movies and everything else, right? That might not be popular today, but I'm telling you this. We have got to get that sin out. And if it's something that's not pleasing to God, then it shouldn't be in our lives. Break up your fallow ground. We would be a completely different people if we saw everything in the light of eternity. We live too much in time. We're too earthbound. We invest our time and money as the world invests it when we should be investing our time and money in eternity. We don't fear God the way that we should. We don't reverence him the way that he deserves. I won't have you turn over there for the sake of time, but Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 16 says this. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Think about what that means. Malachi is another one of those books. If I said turn to Malachi, I can guarantee you the first thing you think of when I say turn to Malachi. What? He's going to talk about tithing, right? Because the, there's the principle of tithing is in the book of Malachi. There's a lot of other things in Malachi that are great things that we can get out of it. And this is one of them. Verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him. You know what that means? When you do things that are pleasing to God, he writes it down in his book of remembrance. Now, it's not like God's going to forget it, but he wants to be able to open up that book and look and say, boy, look at the way he served me this, this day. Look at what he did there. Look at this. Look at that. Look at this. Look at that. It's a book of remembrance that he writes for those that serve him and love him. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Ask God every night what he wrote for you in the book of remembrance today. He writes down the things that we do that are good. 
Did he have anything to write in there for you yesterday? We need to put on sackcloth and ashes and humble ourselves before an almighty God and say, God, change me. But how do we get to that place? Psalm 91 and verse 1. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. These are not blessings that are enjoyed by everybody. They're set aside for the man or the woman who dwells in that secret place with God. And when you get in that secret place, you're doing war. You're fighting the devil. You're fighting that sin. You're fighting everything that the devil is trying to destroy you with. It comes through intense prayer, intimate communion with God. I want to be in that place. The songwriter wrote, break up my fallow ground. Rid my heart of sinful stone where your word will find sweet soil anywhere that it is sown. Look at the New Testament church. Look at the churches throughout the Bible. They didn't have fancy buildings. They didn't have lots of money. They didn't have paid evangelists. They didn't have all the modern conveniences, but they had the power of God, and they turned the world upside down, right? Look how many times Paul had to write to the churches asking them to give him money. He said, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a burden on you, but how many times did they have to pay him to do the things that he was doing? It wasn't like Paul was living in luxury. It wasn't like Paul had everything handed to him. They were struggling to get by, but they had the power of God in their lives, and they're remembered for that. They're not remembered because, well, they had this, and they had that, and they had this, and they had that, and boy, you should have seen the building they had in Ephesus. You don't see that, do you? Because it's not about those things. It's about having the power of God in our lives. And that only comes when we break up that fallow ground, when we get that sin out of our lives so that God can use us. We have to get to the place where we want to be so right with him that it consumes our thoughts. We've got to move on. The setting for revival we see. Stipulation for revival is that we break up the fallow ground, but also the season for revival. He says, for it is time to seek the Lord. We don't know when our opportunity to be really right with God is going to end. You might walk out of here today, have a heart attack, and that's the end of it. You might have a month left, and your clock is ticking. You don't know. You don't know. Number one, you need to make sure that you're saved because you don't know when you're going to die. But number two, you need to make sure you're right with God. How how disappointing would it be to stand before God and, and have him say, you had this, 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 and this that you knew shouldn't have been there. God, I, I, I was going to get to it, but I just, right? Well, I knew it was there, and you know, the devil uses that excuse for somebody that's not saved. No, go, the devil says it. You know, go get saved. The devils believe in God, and they tremble, right? right. Get saved. Go ahead. Just don't do it today. Right. There'll be time. There'll be time. Do it later. Right. And you know what? He used that same lie with Christians. You know you need to get right with God. You know you need to get that out of your life. And I know it. But just do it later. There'll be time for it. Enjoy it because you're young right now. You still have the ability to do it. Go just just enjoy that time. There'll be time to get right with God later. There'll be time to serve God later. Maybe do it after you retire. Maybe do it here. Maybe do it there. Whatever. Just, just do it later. And you know what? We say, you know what? That actually makes pretty good sense. Yeah, this is a good time of life to go out and do all of those things that I know I shouldn't be doing. But... 
I'll, I'll get it taken care of. I'll get it right. I'll stop doing that someday. And someday never comes. Never comes. And never comes. And then you're going to stand before God. And you're going to have an entire life that's lived with no effectiveness for God. With no ability to do what God wanted to do with your life. With all the blessings that you could have had from God for living for him, still up there untouched. It's like somebody that, you know, maybe you've never been in a situation like this before, but it's just kind of like, you know, somebody that, hey, hey, let me, let me uh, and, and maybe you've never been to the store with somebody like this, but I have actually one time been with somebody, and, and they, they were going to be buying some groceries for somebody else, and they said, hey, do you like this? Yeah, I like that. Grabbed an armful of them, dropped them in the cart. You like this? Yep. Grabbed an armful of them, dropped them in the cart, you know? It's not just, okay, we'll get one or two of those things. It was somebody that needed, that they needed it, and so they were, you know, you like it? All right, here, let me give you a bunch of it, you know? They were not holding anything back. And that's exactly what God wants to do with us. He's got shelves full of blessings that he wants to give us. Blessings that we cannot even fathom. Blessings that we cannot even understand. Blessings that we don't even know about. He's got them all on the shelf and he's saying, come over here. Do you want this? Let me wipe the whole shelf into your bag. But you just got to get right first. I can't just give it to you. And he stands there waiting with his arms ready to just pour us out a blessing. Doesn't he say that he wants to open up the windows of heaven and pour us out a blessing? That there won't even be room enough to receive it? How many of you have had blessings that were so numerous you couldn't even receive them? Why is that? Because I gotta have that. I gotta have that sin. I can't let go of that. I mean, I want God's blessings. Maybe I can hold on to both of them and reach over there with my foot and grab the blessing at the same time. It doesn't work that way. You've got to let go of the things that you think you want to have to have the things that God really wants to give you. But most of us are not willing to do that. But what does he say? It is time to seek the Lord. Romans chapter 13 and verse 11, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. The sweet missionary to India, Amy Carmichael, said this, we'll have all of eternity to celebrate victories, but only a few hours before sunset in which to win them. We'll have all of eternity to celebrate victories, but only a few hours before sunset in which to win them. If we live a normal life, 70, 80, 90 years, on the timeline of eternity, that is not very long. Think about this. You think about a, a brick wall extending as far as you can possibly see in both directions. And then take a little speck of dust and throw it on that wall. That speck of dust is your life. 70, 80, 90 years, whatever God gives you to live. Because eternity always has been and always will be. And we think, oh, we got 80 years. Oh, I mean, certainly I can get all this stuff done for God in 80 years. But it's going to be that quick on the timeline of eternity, and that's all you get to earn your rewards in heaven. That's all you get to serve God. That's all you get to make your life count for Jesus. We'll have all of eternity to celebrate victories, but only a few hours before sunset in which to win them. We need revival before we allow the devil to have full reign in our lives. And then lastly, let me give you this. 
I know we're a little bit long, but we got lunch for you. All right, you don't have to go far. We looked at the setting for revival. Turn back over to Hosea chapter 10. We looked at the stipulation for revival, that is to break up your fallow ground. We looked at the season for revival, that's now. It's time to seek the Lord. And lastly, the sweetness of revival. Look what it says. Till he come and rain righteousness upon you. He sends it like the summer rain. Go back just a couple pages probably for you and your Bible to Hosea chapter 6 and verse number 3. He says this, then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto, your, unto the earth. There were normally two good rains a year in Israel. One came right after the sowing, and one came right before the harvest. They knew what God was trying to say. They knew. They, they, looked, they looked for those rains. They needed that when they were planting, and they needed that before they sowed. God says, I'm going to send you righteousness. I'm going to send you that revival, just like I send the rain. God waters what we've planted. That seed of humility becomes a plant. That seed of prayer becomes a tree. That seed of tithing becomes a life source. He'll send us so much more than we've sown. How do you know when you've seen revival in your life? I'll tell you one way. It's when you can get excited about your salvation again. You know, can you imagine the day when we finally see him and we can fall down at his feet and thank him for his amazing grace? The songwriter said this, Harvest will then be passed. We'll no longer gather. Only what's done for Christ is all that will matter. The seeds we have sown will then be made known. What joy shall fill my raptured soul that day? Oh, what a moment when we see Jesus, when we stand face to face in his embrace and thank him for amazing grace. Oh, what a moment when we see him. Salvation starts to mean something to you again when you see a revival because you realize what God actually saved you from. And you might have been saved for five minutes. You might have been saved for 50 years. But when your salvation starts to mean something to you again, you realize exactly what Jesus Christ did for you, and you'll get excited all over again about the day that you got saved. Here's another thing. When you can start seeing lost souls again, then you'll know that you're starting to see a revival in your life. We go about our days, day after day after day, rubbing shoulders with hundreds of people, not even thinking once about the fact that there goes a soul that probably doesn't know Jesus Christ. There goes another one that probably doesn't know Jesus Christ. There's another one and another one and another one. What am I doing about it? I tell you, we need to stop sitting in front of the American Idol, the television, and start getting a desire and a burden for lost souls. We have plenty of capable people that are sitting right in these pews of this church criticizing the world for the shape that it's in. And I'm not, I'm not calling anybody out in particular. I'm not saying we just had a conversation and you're criticizing the world. But we all do it. We like to criticize for the world, that, for the shape that it's in. And we're just going to sit here in the pew and be comfortable and not do anything about it once we step outside of these doors. You let your embarrassment override your will to come out in visitation and soul winning or whatever happens to be the excuse of your choice. When you stand before God, do you think that he's going to say, congratulations, you had a well-groomed yard? Or congratulations, your house was in order. Everything looked great in your life. You had the, a, a beautiful house. You had two cars. You had 2.5 children. Everything was perfect. Good job. 
Well, the only thing, you, just, you, you didn't tell anybody about me, but that, that's beside the point. You think that's what God's going to say? Or are we going to have to hang our head in shame and say, I spent a lot of time in that yard. Man, I spent a lot of time on the house. I spent a lot of time working. I spent a lot of time doing this, but God, I'm so ashamed to say that I didn't spend time telling people about Jesus Christ. When you get revival, you get a renewed desire to tell other people about what Jesus Christ did for you and asking Jesus Christ to save you. If you're capable of working on your yard, capable of being up and around, then you're capable of working in a ministry and working for the cause of Jesus Christ. Start seeing the hell that your relatives are going to. Start seeing hell the way that your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers are going to see it when they die without Jesus Christ. There can be no doubt that God wants us to see a revival. Turn over to Isaiah 64 and we'll be done. During the Great Depression, a man named Yates, true story, was operating a sheep ranch down in Texas. And his business wasn't generating enough money to pay the bills, and so he ended up going on a government subsidy and everything else. And uh, his days were filled with stress over his financial situation, wondering where he was going to get the money. They lived, they dressed, they ate in poverty. One day, a seismographic crew came to their house, and they said, we'd like to explore your land to see if we can find oil. Of course, you know Texas is known for that, so he agreed, and he signed a lease contract, and at 1,115 feet, very shallow for most of these wells, they struck a huge reserve of oil. The first well produced 80,000 barrels a day, while a lot of the, the subsequent wells that they found on this property produced more than twice that amount. And 30 years after that discovery, one well was estimated to still have a flow of 125,000 barrels a day. Talk about a lot of oil and a lot of money that he was sitting on. But this vast, just this sea of wealth came, became known as Yates Pool, had always belonged to Yates. He was a multi-millionaire that spent years in poverty because he didn't know what he was sitting on. He didn't know the potential that was right underneath of his feet. And sadly, I think that's the way that a lot of Christians live their lives. I think the application is pretty obvious. We're living lives of spiritual poverty while we are sitting on blessing after blessing after blessing and sitting on the power of God that we could have on our lives if we would just be willing to get the sin out and see a revival in our lives. A.W. Tozer said this, we'll hardly get our feet out of time and into eternity and gaze on eternity that will bow our heads in shame and humiliation and say, my God, look at all the riches that were in Christ Jesus and I come to the judgment seat almost a pauper. Can we not beg God like Isaiah did in Isaiah 64 and verse 1? Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. Verse 4, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath I seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for them that waiteth for him. We cannot tell what God wants to do with us and through us and for us until we start to get right. And once you start to get right and you taste it, it gives you a greater desire to see more of what God can do, more of what God will do. And when you have a little bit of the power of God in your life, it gives you that motivation to say, why do I live without this? 
What could happen if I could have so much more of this power on my life? We need a revival so badly in the world that we live in today. We have to be serious about getting it from God. He's standing on the portals of heaven waiting to rain that righteousness down upon us, waiting to give us that revival. He wants to pour his righteousness out upon us. God's waiting for us to take the necessary steps to break up that fallow ground, to get that sin out of our lives so that he can send a revival. You know what? When it happens, it's going to be so obvious that it was God. All of God and none of us. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. You want to see a revival in your life? Don't wait for it to come. It's time to seek the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for the time we've spent together this morning. I know we're a little bit longer than we normally are. But God, I pray that you'd use this in our lives, in our hearts. I don't know who the message was for. I know it helped me. But God, I pray that we'd be so sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit that if you're speaking to our heart, we'd come forward and get the things taken care of that you want to be taken care of. Every single one of us that has things in our lives that shouldn't be there know that they're there and that they shouldn't be there. So, God, I pray that you give us the boldness, courage, strength, the humility to say, I'm going to get it out. I want God to bless my life. I want to see a revival. God, there's no telling what could happen with a church with a handful of people in it that want everything to be given over to you. Pray that you'd use us. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If God's spoken to your heart about anything this morning, then as the piano plays, the invitation is open and you can come.